Hello, everyone. Welcome to Arash's World. Today, we have a special guest, Dr. Andrew Han. Welcome to Arash's World. Hello. Thank you, Arash, and welcome to my world. So we get to share a world and whatever the third is that we create together and with all of your wonderful audience. So we're all in a world together. It's all Great. in our world. Thank you. So uh, just to get started, Tia, we'll start with the toughest question first. How would you briefly describe yourself? Myself? Mm-hmm. In any way you see fit. <laughs> I know I still have a lot of growing to do. And I've been working on myself for many, many years. And I feel like uh, I've climbed a lot of a mountain, but there's still a lot more to go to get to the mountaintop. Uh, I describe myself as all of the greatest gifts of somebody who is very self-absorbed, which means that I can be unbelievably creative. And it also means that I can be unbelievably narcissistic. Um, I'm, I'm a bunch of contradictions, as my co-writer would say. And, you know, I'm sort of, uh, I would say that I want to, um, from a very visceral, deep place, understand everything I can about people and what makes them grow and what makes them tick because I've always loved people and um, sort of like I've taken everything I've ever done and applied it to that. But it's also like I have a sense of beauty in the world and that there is something like aesthetically stunning that we could touch at least for a moment. And then I deal with all of the pain that comes when I'm not there and the sort of despair that happens and then I try to sit with it as best I can and uh, and I love what I do I'm passionate about what I do and if I could do something to be of service in the world right now uh, then I'll be feeling like my life was worth it mm -hmm, absolutely wonderful wonderful introduction here I, I think one of the things I've also learned is that there is so much beauty that I wasn't aware of previously until you you grow as you say you transform and things become so much clearer and you realize oh my god I did not see this this way or my perspective changes or my whole being changes and it's so wonderful and let's uh, let's talk about that kind of transformation because your book is that one hour miracle a five-step process to guide yourself healing and so healing self-healing guiding it miracle these are uh, words that are that resonate with a lot of us and they're also loaded with a lot of meaning for each of us and um yeah so what is the one hour miracle maybe to get started with that question well <clears throat> I'll tell you what it is for me. <laughs> what we're really inviting people into is more freedom. At any time, you have greater freedom and greater capacity for awareness and compassion and engagement in life. I would say that's a miracle. And sometimes it looks biblical. I mean, I can tell you stories of uh, things that look miraculous in the sense of a biblical miracle. Um, and we do have stories like that, that truly people have said, this is a miracle because they've been in chronic pain for seven years and it goes away in 20 minutes and never comes back. So they think that's kind of a miracle. But I would say it's also a miracle when uh, 
you're not quite as compulsive or you're a little bit more uh, able to live your dream and not be worried about it or a little bit less self-important or whatever, whatever it is that brings you more of a sense of humility and grace and courage and all of those things. So I would say that's what a miracle is for me. And in, in many cases, we get used to the status quo. We see things one way. And I think a lot of people, and myself included, for the longest time, I was afraid. And freedom comes, uh, when freedom comes, it's, it's also terrifying. It seems overwhelming because then you have to make choices and you're accountable for your choices and so on. But that is where, where the beauty also lies, I would say. I agree with you. I mean, I think there, there are certain kinds of freedom that are more personal than interpersonal, like, although they have an interpersonal consequence, right? Mm -hmm. So if, uh, you know, you come and you have anxiety about speaking in front of crowds, for example, right? And then we do a little bit of work and suddenly you can speak in front of crowds. Well, the greatest courage that may have taken is to go into what it was that was keeping you from doing it and going into the inner experience of whatever the fear was that ended up with you feeling like, oh my God, if I'm in front of a crowd, something horrific will happen. But then as you say, there are other kinds of healing you do where you have to say, am I really living in alignment with what my true inner life is? And um, if I'm not living in alignment with it, can I still ignore that? Mm -hmm. And, uh, because some of the work we do, of course, you know, are you had to have a willingness to accept, you know, the responsibility and accountability of living a whole new way of being with all of what that means to you and all of its consequences. And that is truly terrifying, mm -hmm. you know, because then you get to the place of like, you know, the exemplars in life are, you know, are we willing to be crucified, so mm -hmm. to speak? Mm -hmm. Are we gonna say, why did you do this to me? You know, I, I mean, can't I have a villa in Southern France or whatever, you know? So yeah, I think you're exactly right. It is terrifying and um, you build to it. And I'm still, I'm still doing it and I've been doing this for a long time. And believe me, those exemplars, I'm not. <laughs> I aspire. But it is extremely liberating as well, because then you suddenly like open up to a whole new world that you didn't know existed, that world of beauty that, uh, again, uh, gives us so many options that we can choose from, different paths to take. And I think one of the things that has um, uh, made this much quicker now, has opened the, the pathways, and um, uh, it's kind of like at warp speed now, is the pandemic. Because on one hand, we've had technology increase very rapidly, just gains by by a decade, I think that's what uh, estimates say. But at the same time, also, I think that the good side is that we've also reconnected more with ourselves. Many people are resigning jobs that they found out were not a fit to their core being. Um, and so that is a movement, I think, in the right direction in many ways. And um, how would you say has the pandemic affected that kind of quest um, that uh, we're talking about here? Um, I think the pandemic has had, well, first of all, I'd start with what you said. So that's easy. You know, it's like, I think you're right that we have moved at warp speed. I think we've had to come into ourselves. I think for some people that's led to revelation. And for some people it's led to horror. 
and uh, which then could lead to revelation i think uh, a lot of the things where we judge is just like all this that we have inside that is coming out for better or for worse but usually for better if we take the correct path and learn from it and grow as you're saying well that's always the choice i mean like life is always inviting you into remembering and healing which is becoming whole and then evolving and growing and it's just a, from my point of view it's just a question of when Mm -hmm. you know you know some of us you know we have to put our hand on the stove about a million times before we finally say you know what maybe there is a different way and maybe you know even though you know i want the smell of cooked meat or something to be absolutely disgusting about it you know there may be a better way that i don't i can learn and see what was making me do that over and over and over again um, and if you can find that out very quickly and transform it, you don't have to do it. Otherwise, eventually you'll learn because like life teaches you. So it's just like, do you go kicking and screaming or do you go smiling? That's about, that's, that's called free will, I think. You know, and I think just to butt in here, quick, sorry, it's also like we try to control things and we might have the perfect plan and then something unexpected like the pandemic just throws everything out and we have to adapt to that. So no, no, no matter how well uh, we think we control things, there's always the unexpected that can pull us out of that. It's true, but- It's a lesson know, in humility in many ways, I would say, right? I would say that's extremely true. And if we think we control things, life teaches us, I think, that uh, the one thing ultimately we control is not the external. The only thing we have any control over is how we're going to be in relationship with it. That's mm -hmm. it. So I think you're exactly right. If you think, if you think your salvation is I can control what's going on outside of me, life will teach you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Absolutely. And one thing I've noticed, though, and you're a licensed clinical psychologist, and in, in this field as well, and uh, psychiatry and, and, and all these uh, mental health fields, there is an openness to spirituality. There's an openness to religion. There's an openness to the idea of a miracle that did not exist previously, in my view. That was seen as like people were trying to guide you in a different direction. But now it's like, I find this recently, and I, I took a class on positive psychiatry, and it's like spirituality, mindfulness, religion, these are being accepted more than previously in previous times. Well, I would like to think that's one of the reasons, because I started doing the work that's in this book um, 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. And uh, I actually started in some ways writing this book 25 years ago. And people said, you know, uh, the world isn't ready for it. And it's still, because the premise of this book is so different pretty much from the rest of our field in a lot of ways because we're not starting, we're starting with life itself. And we're saying that who we are is life. And when we get into difficulties, when we forget that. So it's not, we're not starting with any aspect of life, whether it's cognition or emotion or behavior or brain function or any of these things. We're saying all of those are aspects that get manifest through energy. And we're starting with the energy of life itself. And, um, that makes a profound difference from my point of view. And, you know, I've been with that idea for decades and I think the world is more ready for it. And I hope 
that if that's true, that our book makes a small contribution, Joni and my book makes a small contribution to moving that along. And that would make us very grateful. Yeah, there's so much truth to it too, as I was reading through through your book. And I also love the, the, the way you are defining trauma. And there seems to be a misunderstanding about it or very limited notion of trauma. It's like something that's very extreme. But I think like we all pass through trauma and there's nobody who's exempt from it. Of course, there are again in degrees and on a spectrum, but it's something that we have to all deal with. And it doesn't like a life without trauma, in my view, does not exist really because and we're going through it right now, collectively, uh, globally as well. Well, I think that's, I, I mean, I love what you're saying. I think it's true that there are collective trauma, there's individual trauma. I like our definition of Odalso because it makes you the expert on trauma. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, even if you're not aware that you're traumatized, trauma is a subjective experience. If there's something that you can't take in stride, it can't be taken in stride or handled or integrated, you're traumatized. Mm -hmm. And that's anything. So like, I mean, I don't want to go into it, but we have, it's not just bad things that can traumatize you. If something is too good and you can't integrate it, it's a trauma also, except that it plays out not as getting away from something, which is aversion, but it, it gets out in craving. So you want to create that experience over and over and over again. We call those wonderful patterns. So we call that positive emotional charge. Or there can be, there's so many things that are traumatic and not all of them are, you know, you're in war and a bomb goes off or you have ritual abuse. Um, and theoretically, if you were a wise enough being, even those things wouldn't traumatize you because if you could integrate them, you could say they're doing something to my body, but they can't touch me. But of course, most of us aren't there. But it, it, it makes it not that somebody outside objectively is identifying what it is that's so bad that can't be handled. You get to, and we know, how do we know? Because you're suffering. Suffering and trauma are really the same thing. Because, you. you know, if you could say yes to everything, you might feel pain, but you wouldn't feel judgment or pain or anxiety or comparison or compulsion because of it. You would just say, I'm feeling pain mm -hmm. in the moment in your human experience. And you'd be able to like be really engaged and open still and not shut down in any way. So, yeah. Um, in, in many ways, and we see a lot of loneliness, and that is a, a kind of trauma, that is an, a traumatic experience, because you, the, we are interconnected, but we cut ourselves out for whatever reason. And I think a lot of people are going through that, and they get stuck in that, and they get into negative thinking, and we really have to change that, that mindset, that, that mind frame that we have, and, and be open to these other experiences that are out there and as well as uh, following your uh, five-step process of like getting to to um, getting to healing self-healing um, well I think what you say about loneliness is profoundly true and I think it's um, there's an existential aspect to loneliness and aloneness but there's also a collective in our culture aspect and there's very personal aspects and clearly you know we have forgotten certain things that more uh, Aboriginal cultures knew, which is that there is only, you know, there is only communion, there is only oneness. Why would we ever alienate ourselves from any aspect of ourselves? But, you know, that's what happens when you become, you know, Cartesian and you think that thinking is 
fundamental to being as opposed to being is fundamental to everything. And, uh, and, and, you know, then of course, once you do that, you stop remembering that who we are is everything. So if I forget that I'm you, then of course, I'm going to do something horrific to you, mm-hmm. or I won't have compassion for you, you know, or I won't love my neighbor like myself, because I'll forget that my neighbor is myself. And it's mm-hmm. very uh, sad. It's, it, it makes me want to cry, actually. Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's also like the, the loneliness that exists in, in couples and in families. It doesn't mean that you're just alone, but it's like being lonely in even a relationship. And I, I see that with, with many people who are not fulfilling, who are not thriving in their relationships. They're not enjoying it. It's just something that, like a car, it's a possession, a car and a house and, uh, and a partner or a family. And I think that kind of true connection with... Uh, our lifestyle, with our uh, the family members, with um, whatever we're doing and 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 our work and so on, is is much needed. And we are just kind of like deluded by things that will not make us happy. That could be uh, income or money or possessions, and really connect to to that part that gives us that life satisfaction. But it's uh, many people fail to see that I think and suffer as a result. Well, I think that's true because they think, if, insofar as we think that material things are going to lead to any kind of ultimate satisfaction, we have difficulty. And what you say about relationship, of course, is true because, you know, if you really want to have an intimate relationship, right, you have to be really fully engaged to be present with someone mm-hmm. and to be present with yourself, but then with someone else, you have to be fully engaged. And you always have to have your heart open. You have to be open-minded. And how many of us are able to do that? And then, of course, I mean, the problem in relationship is that we go in with expectations that lead to assumptions that we're not willing to look at. We don't look at the fact that we come in with our own very limited lenses because of our personalities or because of our, you know, in the grossest sense, life experience. So we come in predisposed to knowing how relationship is supposed to be as opposed to being open you know, and and with couples, you know, the most horrific things is what we call mutual grudges. And people play out mutual grudges in couples so much. It's like, why we marry someone, you know, why? Well, we love them. That's true. But we also marry them because we want to heal our parents' relationship or our relationship with our mother or our relationship with our father or whoever it is. And then, of course, we reenact our parents' relationship or we reenact our relationship with one of our parents. And of course, we're not aware of it, but we just put their head on our spouse. And we, if it's, the, if it's our parents, we put, you know, I'll put my father's head on me and my mother's head on you. And like, you know, go and we'll kill each other in the name of love, you know, but, um, but it's because we don't realize we're trying to heal, you know, choices we made when we were very young, mm-hmm. you know, because partly it goes back to what we we're saying about the control and you think you are in control, but then when you enter a relationship and your freedom and everything, the dynamics change and it becomes like, uh, I see it as a third living entity that is between you and you creating something. But, um, I think one of the problems is we are striving for perfection or we think we're striving for perfection. That is an illusion and it, it causes a lot of harm and suffering. So we want to be the perfect person in many ways and even the, the, the perfect uh, spouse, if you like. And the other part is we're afraid of showing our, our, our true feelings of becoming vulnerable and opening up to the other person. And that's because if we open up, we're seen as imperfect. And again, it becomes a vicious cycle in many ways. Well, I think there certainly is validity to that. I think, 
you know, some of us, I think perfection is the issue. I mean, for some of us, you know, if I think about it in terms of personality, there are some of us who want to be perfect. Like mm-hmm. I'd say about a third of the world really lives about trying to be perfect, you know, one from the gut and, you know, the people who do it from their gut, it's sort of like they say there's a perfect way to act. Mm-hmm. And the ones from the heart, they say there's an aesthetic vision, you know, in my heart of what beauty is. And I aspire to live aesthetic perfection. And then there are, you know, people who have, a, you know, a fantasy about like, you know, the ideal experience, you know, and I'd say one third of the world looks at the world that way. And then they have to come to their own sense of that they'll never be fulfilled or that they are trying to be aesthetically perfect because they think that there's a certain ugliness in them or that they have to be ethically perfect because they think they're underneath it, they have a fear that they're bad. Now there are other, there are other fears also, I think, you know, from that point of view, but I think perfectionism is one of three kinds of fears, in fact. Um, there are other people who don't care about that so much. They care more about worthiness and a sense of lack around worthiness, which isn't quite the same thing. And uh, there are other people who I would say it's about, uh, it's, it's not really perfection, but it's, it's a sense of there's no possibility that they'll ever be loved, no matter what they do. Mm-hmm. And I'd say those are the three kinds of problems. But all of us, you know, it's like we won't be with the fear we have underneath it. Because if we could be with the fear about ourselves, then we wouldn't have to prove anything to ourselves or anybody else or drink alcohol or, you know, do whatever it has to do to protect ourselves from experiencing the fear. But that's the most difficult thing there is to find the things we're most afraid to experience about ourselves. And for one moment, let them, you know, touch them because we think they're a black hole and we'll end up non-existing. And in fact, we end up free. So, which is the same thing, I guess. It's, I think it's also, uh, um, people are afraid of being honest. And I think like, like, honestly looking at things and saying, okay, these are my limitations. And um, I won't be able to become a, a great tennis player just because I, I can't. And so when you're striving for things that you will not be able to do anyways, that causes uh, a suffering. And uh, I think just being also very honest with oneself and knowing your, your strengths, we often overlook that but also your weaknesses and we often don't want to look there so it's kind of finding that that right balance of really who are we and then work on them these are not fixed uh, uh, traits these are things that we can change and work on and improve on well i think um i have some sense about where you're at i think really what it is is ultimately i think it's about Mm self-acceptance So the way, in a funny way to improve, if I took the last aspect of what you said is, if I could be with and accept the things I'm most afraid to admit about myself, right? Mm -hmm. Then of course, I could be honest with everything. I could be honest with my word and deed. I could be honest in my heart. I could be honest, you know, in terms of being open-minded, I could stay open in that way and really truthful. But as you say, most of us can't do that. And then uh, we have to find some way to lie to ourselves because it's too, we just think we can't handle the truth. Mm-hmm. It's just a different kind of truth. It's not like, you know, in the movies with Jack Nicholson, but. Um, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and for me, like to look at all the different parts, even the parts that are, especially actually the parts that are painful, and I remember my own healing, uh, which started about, I guess, 
five years ago, um, was uh, there was a sensation of fear, this dread that was coming. And I was uh, actually uh, um, um, taking the bus and it just came over me. And I said, I don't want to go there. And I, I told myself, no, don't go there. But then afterwards, I opened up to that and it's like, yes, I will go there. And it's very painful. It's a lot of suffering and so on. But it's that uh, proverbial uh, getting rid of your facing your inner demons and getting rid of them. And you come out so much freer, so much happier, so much um, brighter uh, once you get go through that that dark tunnel. But I think a lot of us are just scared of facing that, My, myself included. But it's like it's so necessary towards growth to to walk that that dark path. I would say. Well, I would say it's a dark path, and that it's in the shadows. That in, instead of like, you know, saying, if I really let my panic as I'm getting on this bus and I don't want to get on the bus, what would happen if for one second, in the case you're talking about, I experience the sensation that I'm calling panic mm -hmm. and that it has a life of its own. So when you have your panic, you say, oh my God, my heart's pounding fast. Mm -hmm. Then I'd say, well, Irish, you're not having panic. Someone whose name is heart pounding fast is having panic. Why don't you just bring all your attention there and choose to bear witness and hold heart pounding fast and let it share its story. Mm -hmm. And then it might tell you a story of like you're on the Hindenburg and you've never gotten on to the blimp in the first place and how much of a fool you were. And of course, the bus looks like the Hindenburg. And of course, you're going to like go into a fiery inferno and die or something. And mm -hmm. that's really weird. I didn't know I was on the Hindenburg or whatever. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, I think the way you discover is you say, I'm going to bear witness to that aspect of being that is experiencing the panic, but it's not who I am. It's just an experience that's I can bear witness to, and I can hold whoever that is with uh, compassion. So. Mm -hmm. And and a lot of our and I think you would probably agree a lot of our um, trauma, if you like, a lot of our perception of the world comes from from childhood and childhood experiences that we've had. And this is what I love so much about psychoanalysis because you're looking at the part of your life where we felt vulnerable. And that in many people, it stays with them. And as you were saying earlier about like putting the projecting like the, the, the father onto your, your uh, um, husband or the wife, uh, the mother onto your wife and so on. And these are things that we unconsciously carry with us. And once we, however, look at that and bring it out in the open, that changes a lot of things and a lot of ways of our behavior, of our thinking, of our feeling. It affects us on a, on a whole scale, on a, on a different level. Uh, I agree with you. I think everything that anything that comes into the open and you can be with it, you become mm -hmm. free. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it can be childhood experiences. We have in our book a lot of childhood experiences that get reenacted over and over and over again. I think the interesting thing is because the person who wrote our first wonderful, you know, testimonial is one of the most well-respected and senior psychoanalysts in all of New England. And it never occurred to her that um, things that she would work on psychoanalytically and take a long time with, you know, may not have even started in what we call this lifetime. And, you know, I have, I mean, my training was very psychodynamic and I was in psychoanalysis. I know it well, I have great respect for it. And I really do, by the way, I think, you know, it's because it's an extraordinary way of working. I would say instead of free association, I think 
finding body sensations and bringing our attention to them, in my experience, is a simpler, somewhat more powerful way of going about things than just free associating. Mm -hmm. um, because if you bring your attention to the body sensation and then free associate, you really have lasered in on the being that has the problem as opposed to what it gets revealed in mind. You're going to the body, but of course, if, if, if pounding heart is a living being, it's got a mind, it's got a heart, it's got a body, it's got an everything, and it's here to tell you a story. And, you know, it's, I, I find it unbelievably simple and powerful. But, you know, like I said, we have one story in there of a, of a boy who had major depression because of one thing that happened to him when he was a little boy. Um, and he chose major depression as a way to protect himself from something that was such an overwhelming pain. I don't know if we have this story in there because I forget, but we had another woman who came in because she knew she had ritual abuse, but she was having all kinds of symptoms still. And she'd been in psychodynamic therapy for many, many years, really good psychodynamic therapy, but she was still having a lot of symptoms. And we found out that even the ritual abuse was a reliving an echo of something that was worse from whatever you want to call a past life or the imaginal or whatever. And when she found that story, her symptoms all went away, but it wasn't a story that happened to her. It was a story that actually happened to a fetus and uh, whatever you want to make of that. But when she found that story and helped that fetus, which was very powerful for her, given her religious beliefs, um, it transformed all the symptoms that she'd been working on for years in very good therapy, but hadn't really she said, I must have missed something. And I said, well, I'm sorry, because I use muscle testing to determine what's going on. I said, the thing that you're working on here didn't start in this lifetime. And in fact, some of the things you're talking about, about watching people's arms get ripped off from each other and having to do it and whatever, really is a reliving. And then she found what she was reliving that was really for her worse than even the ritual abuse. And when she transformed that being from this, whatever you want to call it, other lifetime or imaginal or mythological or you know, undreamed dream, her symptoms went away. So. And we, we do have a lot of cases of psychosomatic illnesses. And I think a, a majority also of, of suffering that we have is that that connection between the, the mind and the body. And uh, one thing I was quite fascinated to hear about is uh, somatic markers. So that when we go, and as you're mentioning that, it makes me think of that. When we go through experiences that are stressful, there's certain parts of our bodies that are responding to that. And it stores that information. And by finding a way of releasing not just the mind, which again psychoanalysis would do but also the body and finding that that balance between the two to really get rid of those symptoms and and be free of them again well i would say every symptom is an invitation to remembering something and it's a clue to what you're remembering right mm -hmm. so and then it's just a question of can you go in through the symptom or do you have to find the deeper sort of pattern or theme underneath and we can do that as we can determine do you start with the thing I you come in with or we start with you know the theme that's underneath what you're coming in with and we can determine that um, um, but we have so many stories of I mean the some of my most favorite cases are people who have chronic pain that no one can understand and it's because the chronic pain, even though they're very sure it's about an accident, right? And we have a couple of stories like that in the book of people who have horrific chronic pain and people are saying, look, we know you had this terrible accident, but like, 
you shouldn't be in so much pain, but you haven't, your pain hasn't gone down for seven years after the accident. Why is that? And if I do my, my determining through what's called muscle testing or kinesiology, or in our field, it's called ideomotor cueing, I can say, the reason is because if I muscle test and see if any of your pain is like a physical trauma, it says no. And our first story in the book is about a woman who had a horrific accident and she was sure that it was, you know, a fate, but it turns out that it was the total reenactment of a story that happened for her point of view 2000 years ago that totally was relived in that accident. Although of course she didn't know that because it never occurred to her that the accident she had where she fell and nearly you know, broke her back on a rock was the reliving of being stabbed in the back after she betrayed a whole lot of people. And when she found that story, all of her back pain magically went away in one second and never came back because she found out what the true root of it was. Mm -hmm. And that, that is the biggest question I think that I've always been fascinated with is the question why. And once you look at that, this is also why is this happening? What is that? Why am I alive? Why, why is uh, all of this occurring? And so once we get to the root of it, I think that is, uh, that is really important. But a lot of people are not um, as, as interested in that question, they'd rather want to, or want to skip it and want to go to a fast solution. And um, instead of really like looking at the root problem, and I find that not just with, with, with people, but also things, uh, CBT and, um, and cognitive behavior therapy of like, kind of looking at it on a surface level and uh, uh, the medical science also kind of trying to get rid of those symptoms without really looking the main cause that is there, the root of the suffering that is there. Right. Well, as you said before, suffering is just something that can't be handled and taken in stride and integrated. And of course, every symptom, what we, you know, it's understandable. People want to move away from pain, <laughs> you know, so we have, you know, something is painful. We say, let's go in the other direction and let's get as far away from it as possible. But if we do something counterintuitive and we go towards it and say, of course, I'll let myself be pulled into it because what is gravity gravity is love it's like something like you know i'm attracting you and i'm attracted to you so why don't we come together and when you go into it of course what happens you say oh my goodness that's why headache is here or oh my goodness this is why i have chronic neck pain because you know I couldn't handle being guillotined in revolutionary France and I was ripping my head trying to get away from a guillotine that's coming down on my head or whatever it is. I know that, you know, sounds funny, but I mean, and, or to, you know, our deepest existential fears of non-existence and they all, you know, are things that are really painful and we want to get away from and on a whole other level, they're an invitation to remembering who we are until we know that who we are is everything. And the second we know that who we are is everything, we know why we're here. Because we're here to do two things. On a personal level, we're here to remember that who we are is life, is life evolving. Except we can do one thing life can't do. Because if you're everything, the one thing you can't do is have relationships. You can't have experiences because you're everything. So how are you ever going to have an experience, right? So if we could become self-aware, life, we can simultaneously be everything and still have relationships. And then we can say, what is our particular role? Like we have all these three trillion cells, right? Well, on, the, on one level, they're all differentiated and each of them has their own particular role to play in the service of the evolution of life itself. And I would say that's our sole mission is like, what is my 
thing that I contribute, whatever that is, to the evolution of this living being called life that has a body, which is everything in the universe that is matter, everything. And so I'd say that's why I think we're here. I think we're here to remember who we truly are and play our role in the evolution of who we truly are and everything else, you know, so we're in service to ourselves in life. That's why I'd say we're here. I, I, I really like how it's like, because a lot of people also are looking for like, what should I do? They want answers. They want like clear cut answers. And with, with, with your book and, and, and your approach, it's really like, you're guiding the person, not necessarily teaching, but guiding them in the direction so they can find for themselves. And when you're in charge of your own healing, and again, you also mentioned in your, in your title, self-healing, when you're in charge of it, it also, it's, you're exploring and it also gives you confidence and it also makes you feel proud of being on that quest. And then it's kind of a, a cycle that reinforces itself in many positive ways, instead of just going to the doctor or let's say the psychologist say, oh, this is what you're suffering from. There you go. You got the answer. I think your approach is so much more dynamic, so much more wonderful. Well, our approach thanks you. I think you're right. We turn everything on its head. We say we're not the experts on anything except for a framework and a protocol. That's what we're the experts on. You're coming to me for my expertise about having studied all the possibilities in life so that I can, because if you can't think about something, right, if it never occurs to you that the reason you have tinnitus is that like a little green man put like rods in your ears so you wouldn't hear something, you're not going to, if that's the most elegant explanation, however you want to make sense of it, and you don't have to think it's real or not, but if your tinnitus goes away, who cares, right? I like right? that, yeah. So, um, it's like, sorry, it's like the placebo effect that like, you know, when people, if people get better by just, let's say, drinking water, or having a sugar pill, whatever, that's wonderful. I mean, that's that's the idea too in many ways. And that's causing headaches for the scientific community of how to explain for that. And I do believe there is like, there's something else that's at work that is really making this happen. And uh, it's just wonderful that there that does exist. That gives me hope that because the placebo is like more powerful than powerful drugs in many ways, not always, of course, but in many ways. And I think that's an important thing to tap into and to explore. Well, I mean, if you read our first forward, Anne-Marie Chaisson, who is um, Andrew Weil's partner in his work, talks, that's what she talks about. The whole mm -hmm. forward of her book is like, you know, she was this mainstream doctor. And then she starts looking at the placebo effect and she says, there is something more going on here. So it's exactly as you say. So, you know, when we really focus on something, amazing stuff can happen. But then we say, well, why does it work for some people and not for others? Mm -hmm. And then you find out that if trauma gets in the way of the placebo effect, it doesn't work as well. And that's what you see. Well, why, like some people, it's like they can say, I am going to live like it's happening right now, right? That's really what I would say the law of attraction is, is it's people think it's egoic. If I think about something, you know, it will happen. No. I don't think, I think that's, we don't, on that level, our beliefs do not create reality in this level. They do on another level, but on this level, if you think your beliefs create reality and I have a loaded gun and I'm pointing it at your heart and if I say I shoot you and you say, well, I don't believe it's going to hurt me. We have a word for that and it's not a pretty word, right? So, but I think on another level, it's profoundly true when there's no trauma. If we feel experience in the body, like our life is different right now, particularly if we line up, how do we know what's true for us, right? Mm -hmm. 
Well, it's the same thing. We think it's top down, right? We think, oh, the head knows what's going on. It's the expert. We should ask it. The head doesn't know shit, just like most of us. You know, we're not, we don't know what's best for people. The head doesn't know what's best for us. Mm-hmm. It's the belly. It's the gut. It says, oh, I know what's true for me when I just let my attention go freely. I know what's true for me. And then the heart says, given whatever that is, what I know for me is what's true, right? Not the truth what's true in my being, then I can ask, well, what do I really desire or aspire to given what I know is true? And then the head comes in and says, well, we can figure out some ways that we might take a first step or something, right? Well, it's the same thing in our field, right? We're not the expert except in like, I can give you a framework and a way of doing something that's gonna be useful. Your job is you're gonna take a journey, but who's the real expert? Life. And life is revealing itself to you and with you and through you two ways. First of all, through this deepest knowing, like when you just let your head go and you say, life, I'm not going to fill it in with my ego, but I'm going to be open. I'm going to actively receive you and you teach me. Mm -hmm. Okay. But the other way it teaches us is whenever we have a discomfort, life is saying, you should pay attention to this. And you shouldn't get rid of me. I'm here. I'm with you. It's like God saying, I'm with you. And you say, I deny you. I I hate your guts. And I mean, we say that to life, right? We say we hate your guts because it's showing up in something we don't like consciously. So instead of saying, oh, my God, you're here with me and you're trying to reveal something to me, you say, give me a pill and get rid of it. And that's why I say, if I wanted to say one thing to everybody, it would be in this. I'd say, whenever you have a discomfort, before you take a pill, and say, I hate your gut's headache, so to speak. Say, headache, I'm going to choose to become you like an actor who's going to play a role. And in my new story, my name is going to be Headache. I'm going to become Headache. And I'm going to focus on you so much. And then I'm going to just tune in and I'm going to start listening to you and sharing whatever comes to me. And worlds open up when you become Headache. And whenever you're suffering about something, which just means you can't accept it, And acceptance, by the way, does not mean passivity. Mm -hmm. Acceptance means I accept the situation, including the changes that happen if I don't accept me, right? If being non-judgmental, but being non-judgmental doesn't mean being not discerning. You can say, I don't have to judge a murderer, but I may want to stop them from doing the murdering, Mm -hmm. right? And the whole thing is, can we be? In, can we keep our hearts open? And that's the lesson everywhere: that love, really, which is acceptance, conquers fear. Mm-hmm. Love it conquers hate. Love conquers despair. Love conquers rage. What is love? It says, "I can be with you, whoever you are, without judging you, but withholding you." If you have a child who's having a temper tantrum, you don't throw him through a windfall. Maybe you do, but hopefully you don't. You say, "I'm here with you. I can hold you, and you can kick, scream, and do whatever." And I'm just here with you and I won't be reactive I'll just told you and we'll find out what that's going on somehow and it's being curious being curious about like who you are and yourself and I I was suffering from from migraines where you talk about headaches I was suffering from pretty much weekly migraines and uh, high blood pressure and uh, sleep apnea and all that and, and, and I go to the, to the fam, family doctor who would say, you need to take pills. And I say, okay, I don't think that will help the issue. And then I go and they say, you have to wear this uh, machine at night for sleeping. And I say, Do I, can I get better? Can I heal? And say, no, this is for life. This is chronic. You're always with it. And well, I've, recovered from, I've recovered from all three of them. I'd say, how do you know for sure? 
How do I know for sure that I recovered? Well, if a doctor said to me, you'll oh, never. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Well, I would say, well, maybe nothing in your experience leads you to believe that it isn't possible, but how do you know for sure? And that's the intuition that I had. I said, I know there's a way of dealing with it without following your advice, without following the doctor's advice who would, who would tell me, because I found their view was limiting. And then later on, when I went and she, she checked my blood pressure, she said, how did you do it? Don't tell and, us. Does your audience know how you I should. I don't know. I want to know. How'd you do it? Like, and it's, it, exactly. I mean, that's, that's what pretty much all my podcast is about is like, really taking charge of, uh, of your own healing as, as, as you are doing. And I'm also curious also, how did you get started on this? Because you're talking about like three decades ago. Um, how did you get, get started on this path of, of healing and, and, and self-healing and all that? What was the, um, the trigger, if you like? Is there anything specific? Well, um, yeah. That you like to share? I mean, Oh, I'm not happy to share anything. There's, okay. well, I'm not happy to share everything. I'm still <laughs> like, there's certain things that I would be afraid to say to the world that, you know, I keep still somewhat private, but, uh, you know, someday I'll do that probably, you know, and be St. Augustine and talk about all of the shameful things I've done in my life, but not right now. Um, um, well, <sighs> There's a couple of answers to your question about how I went down this path. And, you know, there's the answers to what happened when I was very young. There's then I went to graduate school. Then I had this story where um, I had this extraordinary uh, experience of um, being at a place called the Self-Realization Fellowship with a friend who had hurt herself very badly. And she actually got to a place where she couldn't walk anymore. She was in so much pain. And she sat down on a bench and I sat down across from her to have her put her ankle on my leg. And I was flooded with light and energy. And I just started channeling it to her ankle and all of her pain, all of her discoloration and swelling and pain went away. And I said, this is, you know, not Kansas and uh, anymore, not in the Wizard of Oz. So that really was transformative. And then I went and went to do all kinds of trainings. And then um, I heard about a woman who had done this uh, really interesting session on, a, on an asthmatic who couldn't barely walk and was, was wheezing so badly at a training. And she did this thing called muscle testing that I never heard of and you know, had her tap all over her body while she told the story. And then the woman goes outside and starts to run up and down the street and is exhausted and exhilarated because you know, she said, I haven't been able to run a step in seven years. So I found out who that was. And we put together what she knew about craniosacral therapy and NLP, which is neuro-linguistic mm -hmm. programming. And she was one of Roger Callahan's first students who was one of the originators of putting together acupressure and psychology. And then she had done her own research on loss and violence traumas, which is brilliant. And I brought everything I knew about psychoanalysis and depth psychology and spiritual psychology and postmodern systems theory and narrative therapies and energy healing and everything. And we put ourselves together and created something that she calls something and I call something else because our worldviews are, let's say, somewhat different. And so, and then I started doing my own trainings 25 years ago now. 
and uh, it just keeps evolving because life keeps teaching me things but there are certain fundamental things you know that uh, really life is about being able to just say yes to everything including the changes that want to happen that when you can't say yes to everything a sensation is born and it's a living being because it was born in a moment just like you were or i was and it has a life of its own it's not our body sensation any more than you are my Irish, right? I mean, you are, but I'm your Andy. And if you have migraine headaches, that being's name is migraine headache. It's not my migraine headache, or it's not the migraine headache. It's migraine headache, and migraine headache was born in a moment. And it's come to share a story. And if you listen to it, it will tell you what story. And if you really give it what it needs, theoretically, either will go away or you'll say, you know what, maybe I needed a migraine headache because I needed to slow down. But at least you, and you won't be judging it anymore. And I never guarantee people their symptoms will go away because I'm not God. <laughs> what I will say to them is one of two things will happen, right? Either the symptoms, if you stick around long enough, the symptoms will go away or your relationship to them will change to such a degree that you won't have any suffering about them. Mm -hmm. let's say you came in and you said andy here's what i want you to do i want you to guarantee in a physical level i'll never die in this lifetime well i would be pretty silly i mean it's not quite like migraine headaches but i'd be pretty silly say, i don't want to ever die i want to live forever in this form and i want you know my body never to die and i'd say well i'm not sure i can guarantee you that but i might be able to guarantee you that if you do die i'm not going to say you won't i mean i don't know maybe you'll live forever i don't know who am i to say because i'm not god but you know i'm open to everything I am open to everything. Mm -hmm. Believe me, I mean, I'm open to things that if you told me when I was in graduate school, I would have said, yeah, pigs fly to the moon. Now I'm open to pigs flying to the moon because I've seen things and I said, yeah, pigs will fly. But like, maybe I can get it so you're not anxious. And then who cares whether you die or not? And if you don't have any anxiety about your migraine headaches, you could say, well, are you really here to serve me or is it time to let you go or whatever? But it's like, you know, if you're not attached to results, but you're just attached to as you say, curiosity and opening to life and saying, you teach me because you know better than I do, right? Because I'm just the, the mystical concept. I'm just a cell in this being that has a body called, you know, life and it's a living being. And, you know, it knows a lot more than me, but I am it. That's the key. We have, we have doubts. We're skeptical about things. We're, we're doubting things. And even myself, I remember like I, I watched uh, the, the program, The Secret, uh, Rhonda Burns uh, idea of like manifestation and you, you, you desire something and you do the work and you wish it. And it, uh, and again, if it's within reason as well, but, uh, it comes true. And I said, well, this is just bogus. And I tried it out and it did come true to my surprise. And then there's others, the unconscious, like, what are you talking about? The unconscious does not exist. I don't think that's true and so on. And then you try it out and you have those wonderful results and you realize, oh, there is more to it. And like, like you're saying, I think we have to open our eyes to many things that are happening, coincidences or, or things that happen in front of our eyes that are astounding and really like looking at them without judgment, as it's saying, and with curiosity and with an open mind and see where it would take us. And in many cases, it's, it's somewhere very good, very powerful. Well, I would say as long as we apply it to everything, right? Mm. So like, I would say doubt and faith are in this wonderful reciprocal relationship. Mm -hmm. And both of them can be holy and both can be demonic, right? Mm -hmm. So like, if you have only faith and you go to a used car salesman, so to speak, and say, he says, well, I have 15 used cars. Each one is better than the last. And like, oh, well, I had faith in, you know, so I bought all of them. 
I would say that was, there's a word for that and it may not be faith. It's, it may be the downside of faith. And doubt might be, you know, you know, I trust you, but I'm gonna like verify, right? <laughs> so the question is, you know, it's also to everything in its season. It's yeah. like, you know, there's a time for faith and there's a time for doubt. And it's like, can we like let life teach us as opposed to thinking we know better? And as long as we do that, we could say yes to everything mm -hmm. and know when it's time is right and know when it's time is ended, just like day and night, you know? Mm -hmm. So I would say as long as we can be really, really open-minded to all possibilities and not be evaluative and say some are better. We may have preferences, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I, you know, I prefer peas to carrots or whatever, but it doesn't mean peas are better than carrots, right? In many so, ways, it's that intuition of really like, like trusting it, but that's when you doubt it. And when you doubt your intuition, that is, I think, counterproductive. That is not helping you. Well, that's because, yes, that's a different thing because that's really about not, that's not about doubt in one sense. It's about, a, it's really, it's one of two things. It's either a trauma structure, right? Mm -hmm. So you're eight years old and you're going around doing your thing. And then someone says, really, you think you could be da 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 da? And you had this dream and suddenly you say, I better not have ever that dream again. So I'm going to protect myself and just doubt from now on, right? Mm -hmm. We have all kinds of stories like that. You know, somebody who like, you know, had this creative idea and then someone says, really? And they say, oh, I better not have ever that anymore. And then they come in with doubt and the doubt is just a protection because they found out that if they really opened to their aliveness, they were going to get annihilated on some level and they couldn't handle it. So they said, I'll call in doubt as a protection. Mm -hmm. And you say, well, that makes some sense. You made the best choice when you were four, but now you're 44 and maybe it's time to make a different choice. And that traumatized four-year-old called in a protector called doubt. And if you could just bring your attention to that four-year-old and the protection he's bringing in that he's forgotten was a choice, right? So that every time you get excited about anything, suddenly you like clamp up and you become constipated and you weren't even aware of it right? Because you forgot what happened when you were four, you go back, find and say, of course, you made a choice then because you were like, you know, you were going after your dream, and then someone like, killed you for it. And now, every time it comes up again, you know, your wife is saying, like, he never goes for anything. He's like, a, like, never takes a chance on anything. And you find out of four, well, you were taking a chance and you got killed. So you say, well, made sense at four. But you can make a different choice now. Yeah, and it, it it's fascinating because my my best decisions have been that gut feeling where it actually didn't make sense on a, on a, on a, in a in a logical way it didn't make sense. I decided to go and uh, teach in Mexico with like minimum wage, and it was and I had student loans at the time, and everyone told me this is the worst thing you could do, and I met my wife there, and it changed my life completely. So it's like it just felt right, and I was like, I want to explore that and see where it takes me. It might be the worst decision in terms of finances, but it ended up being the best in terms of relationships. And I think a lot of people are just hesitant there. But to go back to the negative well, way, yes, yeah, I really want to say what you sure. say. I want to slow it down here because yeah. I think what you say is so true. If because it's a different, that's a different kind of knowing. Mm -hmm. And that deepest intuitive knowing, I would say, if our rational minds, which I think has the power of one that tries to figure stuff out, I won't say <laughs> shit, but stuff out, right? Well, it's going to, of course, it's run by 
trauma. It's run by your anxiety. Like it's run by your fear. But what is that deepest knowing? That deepest knowing, which is your life force, it's the same thing. That deepest knowing, when you tune in and say, I'm supposed to go to Mexico. And they say, you're crazy. And you say, I probably am, but I know it's true for me. So I'm going there anyway. And I may be crazy, but who cares? Because I know that's right for me. And if we all could do that, you know, worlds would open up. And I say to people, and I've learned this the hard way myself, I say, if you really want to know what's true for you, get as quiet as you can, put one hand on your gut and just say, I'm going to ask what's true for me. Or something comes to you and like that and you say, I'm supposed to go to Mexico. Like this invitation come, you know, it's the surrender experiment, so to speak, if you know that book, except, you know, you also have to take into account that if you had a two-year-old, you know, and they were there and, you know, they had, your whole family was here, maybe you don't go anyway, but at least then you say, well, I know I am not, but I know I got the invitation, right? Mm -hmm. You have to say, well, there is life here. And if I had a two-year-old kid, maybe I don't go to Mexico right now because of whatever, but I know it's there. And if I'm really supposed to go, I take the two-year-old with me, right? Yes. So it's like, it's like it's honoring of our responsibilities, but it's also honoring of our ability to respond to a deeper aspect of our own being, which is that gut knowing. And I'll tell you, that gut knowing is the same gut knowing that when you have a mother who weighs 110 pounds and a car rolls over a toddler and she has to pick up the car that weighs 2,000 pounds and she picks up the car and, you know, she's saying, how could you do that? And she said, I just know I could do it. <laughs> and that's the same energy as you say, I just know I'm supposed to go to Mexico, even though it makes zero rational sense. Exactly. I know it's true for me. And I know what, you know, and something is drawing me there. And my heart is saying, do it. And I'm going and like, you know, what's the worst that's going to happen? And I met somebody on the plane as I was going there. And he told me, your life is going to change. You're going to get married and have a kid. And I said, you're nuts. That's not going to happen. And it did. And I told him afterwards, like, <laughs> your words were prophetic. It did happen. Yeah, well, you already knew, you just didn't know you knew. Yeah, that's true. But, but going back to the one that I would disagree with is when you put your faith into something without actually um, making it happen. So I remember in, in, in grad school, this one, um, one student who would not study and say, yeah, okay, I'm going to get a good grade because I have faith in, in, in God and I'm going to do well. And it's like, well, instead, just like, you know, study. <laughs> that's the best way of doing it. That kind of blind faith is not going to help you with those exams. Uh, that's why I say I don't think in this dimension beliefs create reality. That's true. Exactly for the reason you said. It's like people really believe in a certain kind of the law of attraction, say, well, I believe I'm going to do great, so I don't have to study. I'd say, no, that doesn't follow. That's called irresponsibility, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so we can, I mean, it's sort of like, or someone said, I know that my beliefs create all reality. Someone said that to me. I said, okay, well, let's, let's suppose for one second, I have a loaded gun here and I'm pointing it at your heart and I'm going to fire the gun and you're going to tell me that you're, it's not going to affect you at all. And I would say that's a little bit bananas because I have every confidence that virtually every time you know, it's not going to bounce off of you. Now, there may be one in a quadrillion times it does, but in this reality, in three-dimensional material reality, material forces do have an impact. And if you don't study for your exams, most of us will fail. Yeah. yeah. You know, so I think you're right. I think that is a, that is a, but then it's serving. It's a desecration yes. of something. And it's a reliving of a story of like, you know, narcissism of something yes. that you think yes, exactly. is, yeah. You know, 
anyway it's serving like your own purpose and it's that's not it it's like you ask for something and it might or might not happen and that's the thing but if it does happen then it happened for a reason and it kind of but you do have to put in the effort i think that's hugely important that's really important. or you're going to learn what happens when you don't and you'll say exactly oh, maybe i had to learn that i'm you know the whole world doesn't revolve around me and i can do whatever i want best and- is a combination of both i guess <laughs> But I'll tell you the other thing that I think, which is important, which is you have to also be non-attached to the result. You may have gone to Mexico and in a different story, you might not have met your wife and had a kid. And that doesn't still mean it was the wrong choice. (laughs) You know, all you can do is say, I know there's an invitation here, but I don't yet know why. I'm not going to say I know why, because if I knew why, it wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be saying I'm following something. And I have a sense it's the right thing for me. But there may be forces that are much bigger than me that are in play here that all I can do is trust what I know and take that next step. But, you know, I can't be attached to like, you know, I find my wife and my kid, you know, it may be that there's a large possibility you will, but maybe life veers off in a different direction for some reason. And all you can say is I had an invitation. I took it and we'll be open to what happens. And then life happens. One of the things I'm not sure about, I'm struggling with, is the idea of destiny and uh, vocation and how much uh, things we do control. Going back to our very first question, how much we don't. And if there's a, something that's pushing us in a specific way, or is it all our choice? Is it all free will? Where, what do you think of that? What's your stance? I'll tell you what I think about free will. Mm-hmm. I think free will is one thing. Mm-hmm. It's when that invitation comes that you talked about, do you say yes or do you say no? That's free will. When life presents you with something that you're suffering about, do you say, I have to delve into what's underneath this and find out what's causing the suffering or am I just gonna you know, do something else? And I would say, the more we say, I'm gonna be open-minded and open-hearted and find out, the more we find out the things that look like fate were actually destiny. Because life was inviting us to come to some revelation, right? I'm supposed to go to Mexico. I had this accident, you know, which is so much suffering or I have these migraines, right? But the migraines are here on some level. What would happen if I change my relationship with them and just say, okay, I'm even going to say yes to migraines, right? I don't like you. I don't have to like you. But I'm going to at least say, you know, you're here for some reason that it's not just. And then you find out the accident you had that you sure was fate was the reenactment of something that happened 2000 years ago, which is the first story in our book of a woman whose accident was an exact echo of what happened 2000 years early. I mean, it's like amazing, right? And she was sure it was an accident, except that when the session was over, she said, maybe it wasn't an accident after all. Maybe there was some template inside me, some engraving that was unconsciously co-creating this because everyone here for some reason needed that to happen, even though from my point of view, it was just the most horrific accident that led me to have chronic back pain for seven years. But maybe that back pain was trying to help me remember what happened, whatever we want to call it, 2,000 years ago. And, uh, and that's why it came to me. So I would say we have two choices. One is the one you talk about, which is 
it's about vocation, really. It's like, I have this felt sense that what I'm to do right now as my part of life, right? In my differentiated way right now is I'm to go to Mexico, right? That's one of the two reasons I think we're here is to open to whatever that is and as best we can say yes to it. And that I think teaches us when we have that aliveness and we say, I'm going for it, right? And that's narrative instruction. I'm going to Mexico, right? Um, and that's one of the two reasons I think we're here is to follow life's lead. The second reason we're here is to remember that who we are is life. And that means I say yes to everything, right? Because when I say yes to everything, dense life, which is pain in chest, goes back into its pure form. If I say I'm here with you and I totally accept you, it goes from being what makes pain in chest. Who we are in this dimension is E squared, right? That's who we are. E squared. We are a verb. We are energy. Energy is not something that you can, it's not an identity. It is a flow. It is everything but an identity. When you can't accept something, E equals MC squared matter, right? If you can't accept something, if something is unacceptable, if you can't say yes, energy slows, you know, energy slows down by the speed of light squared and becomes dense. And all it wants to do is go back into its pure form in this dimension, which is E squared, which is on this dimension, that's what soul is. I think soul and E squared are the same thing in this dimension because we do have a material body, but it is our possibility of becoming energy. That's why we're here. We're all here. And when we can say yes to everything, including being crucified, as opposed to saying, why have you done this to me? Why have you forsaken me? At which point we're not happy and we're still in matter. But the second we can say, they can't do anything to me because that's not who I am. That's my body. I have a body, but it's not who I am. You know, they can kill my body, but they can't kill who I truly am because who I truly am is something that is not an identity. It's not killable because it's not a noun. You can't kill a verb. You can, you can destroy an entrance, but you can't destroy in trance. I'm entranced by life. You can't destroy it. You can experience it, but you can't point to it, right? And that's when you, when you really become this, the world becomes, in the best sense, a magical mystery tour, right? Mm -hmm. No, I never said that before, but that's what it really becomes. And that's what I think our second thing is. So is to say, I'm going to remember that I am everything and everything is who I am, but I have my particular place to play and life will reveal that to me if I open to, oh my goodness, like I have this deep felt sense in my being that just, yes, it's like my body is just feeling in a line and, I, and the words that are coming to me when I do that is Mexico. <laughs> Mexico. And, you know, I honor that you listen because look what came of it. Now I have to go and see your wife and your kid. <laughs> well, my now wife actually, like, well, my wife was in Mexico. She had dreams that she would meet the person she would be with. It was a prophetic dream. So she's working, she's a nurse and she's working in lab and they actually sent her to another place. So she was like, uh, uh, they, they rescheduled her and then put her in, the, in a different lab. And um, she was like, she said, no, she was rebelling against it. Like you're saying, it's like, no, I, I have to stay here because this is where I'm going to meet somebody important. And I said, no, you're going to go to the other place. And it's at the other place where like two weeks after that, we met. 
So it's it's also when you are trying to resist something that the invitation is really pushing you in that specific direction. It's like, just go, <laughs> just trust your 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 gut feeling, your intuition, and just just go, just do it. But I I, comple- I I completely agree with you. There's only one part, and to be completely honest, that I'm still hesitant, and I will share I that it. with you. Um, I have no issue with soul. I think there is a soul. I do strongly believe there's an afterlife for me. That's like not just a belief. It's like experiences. I just saying I will have a specific podcast about that later on at some point uh, to get into. But past life is something that I'm a bit hesitant about. But I will say that the first time I went to Venice, I felt this feels like home. And it made no sense because I'd never physically been there. And that kind of came from the intuition that I usually trust. So that baffled me because on a rational level, I say, no. (laughs) Yeah. Well, here's what I would say. Uh, In terms of healing, what you believe is none of my business. I'll find a way to talk to you. I don't care. If you say I'm an atheist and I never believe in past lives, I'll say, I don't either. What's past lives? I mean, so to speak, because I can find an aspect of my community that says, I'm just going to watch football games and drink beer. I just don't happen to do that. But, you know, somewhere in there, there's someone who drinks beer still, I guess. But, you know, so I don't care. I don't care what you call it. I'm just looking for the most simple, powerful thing that will lead to transformation that's useful. So you can say, never say past lives. And I'll say, fine. And I'll just say, well, let's call it a movie or the imaginal or a personal myth or an undreamed dream. I don't care what you call it. But what I found is the most powerful, simple story that will be useful for your healing and growth is not going to be a story where you're the main character. You make sense of it any way you like. Mm -hmm. Now, if some people, but I've had people, you know, I've had some amazing stories. Like you can watch in one of another podcast. We had this man who was, you know, um, a medium. And he didn't believe in past lives either, which was interesting because he was talking to the souls of dead people, but he didn't think past lives could affect them. But he had this terrible stomach problem, okay? So we didn't work on a terrible stomach problem. We found out that it was a traumatic death, a really awful traumatic death. I could do that. I can determine that. And he dropped into that experience of traumatic death and his stomach problems. And suddenly he was, he knew exactly where he was. In 1873 in Missouri, he knew he was a train robber. He could experience the whole thing very vividly. And he watches himself get shot in the stomach and have this excruciating long death, at which point he dissociated, he left part of him what he wanted. If you're a soul, you'd say there was a lost soul part. If you're psychologically oriented, you'd say dissociation. I don't care what you call it. And, but he was very identified with this person. And uh, when we said, here's his problem, he didn't even, he, he never experienced dying because part of him left his body before because he didn't know that he had died through experience. So I said, well, here's what you got to do. You have to come back into the body and tell him he actually has died. And you have to have him go through a death process, which is called a poet practice in Buddhism. And he goes through that and he like leaves the body this time by choice and goes to the light. And he says, I feel great. All of his stomach problems that you will hear from him, they went away. I don't know if they've come back or not. I haven't heard from him. Now, the interesting thing is he discovered, I guess there was enough information about this man that he could actually find this man's name in 1873 in Missouri. So that's an interesting story. I had another guy who knew he was, he didn't know anything about this history, but he knew that he was a low level Nazi general and he knew his name because it came to him when he was doing this work. And um but he didn't know that history. Well, of course, he went and checked, and he really didn't. I know this guy was like as truthful as the day is long, you know. 
Um, and he found everything about this man, including that they knew that he died somewhere in the Battle of Stalingrad, but they didn't know what happened. But he said, I know what happened. There was a forced march and he froze to death. And he knew everything that happened. And he knew all this before he checked it out. So I would say an obvious explanation to this is to say who we are is energy. Energy never dies. Energy can become matter by choice. So of course, theoretically, the energy can become matter, which is called Andy or Irish or, or whatever. And, you know, but there'd be, there's in the template, there is still engravings from like lifetimes become like years to us. But if you don't believe in past law, I'd say, go read Ian Stevenson, who's written about this, or go read, you know, or if you're, you know, go read The Afterlife Experiments by Gary Schwartz, which is an amazing book that basically proves there's an afterlife because he does these things with mediums and it's amazing. <laughs> or don't believe it because you don't care and all you want to do is get rid of your stomach problems. And any way you look at it, I have to plug in or you will lose me. Um, but like, I don't care what you believe. It's none of my business. But of course, you know, if you, your stomach problems go away and you find out or, you know, you know, all this stuff happens and you start to transform and, and uh, this general who you know what their name is, is talking with you and tells you everything about his life. And you find out that it's all historically true. You know, it's kind of, but you can make sense of it any way you like. It doesn't matter to me because it's not a philosophy class. I, I love your answer. This is just amazing. And uh, it's, there's, there's part of me again, like the, I want to believe in that part. But at the, at, the, at the same time, I was thinking previously that it would be um, not a good idea to tap into that at one point. But would you say so if would you say that that is something that would would help people to to explore that avenue? Is it something that can lead to, to better self knowledge? Would you agree with that? Totally, because like I'm looking for the first time some theme can't be taken in stride or handled or integrated. And from my point of view, why be egocentric about it and say, well, my lifetime is it. That's like saying, you know, the, everything revolves around the earth. No, everything does not revolve around the earth. The earth is revolving around the sun, which eventually is revolving around life. So, you know, if you think everything, it's the movement from egocentricity to life centricity. Egocentricity to me says like the whole world revolves around me. I'm like an infant. I mean, I, you know, something after me, the world's supposed to move because the world is me. Right. <laughs> and I think we found that, you know, we thought that was true. Well, man is the epicenter of everything. No, Darwin kind of threw a loop into that one. And, you know, Copernicus and Galileo came along and, you know, toddlers do grow up eventually and say, maybe the whole world doesn't revolve around me. And I think it's the same thing with lifetimes. But that doesn't mean this lifetime doesn't count. It just means like, you know, there's some people, all they want to do is past life work. And they're very disappointed when I say, well, really, no, it's what happened to you at age eight in this lifetime. But other people don't believe it at all. And I say, I don't care how you believe it, but like, you know, um, like we had one woman, I mean, I can tell you all kinds of stories about karmic past lives, you know, which is reincarnation or genealogical ones where, you know, it's really something happened in your bloodline. Um, but I still, still think that's energetic. And when they transform those stories, things that they had worked on in this lifetime for ages just went away because, really this lifetime was just a reliving of something else that was in a template already waiting to be healed. And so I find that it's, I say, if you open to everything, right? Why, I mean, if we can think it, why can't it be 
so or useful, right? But if you don't open to everything, then that's where something will like, you know, we have people who believe in ghosts, but don't believe in extraterrestrials that can put implants in your ears. We have other people who believe that you can be abducted, but they don't believe in dark energies that can take you over. I say, why, if you can think about it, it's possible. Mm-hmm. All we're looking for, and I can tell you stories that are not of normative Western reality. And other lifetimes is relatively simple, but, you know, someone being taken over by demonic energies and then suddenly, you know, becoming psychotic and dissociative identity disorder and you take care of that one dark energy and they're never hospitalized again. Well, I don't know. I can tell you, I have that story documented and I found out because I saw that woman 25 years later and she told me after she found that story being taken over when she was eight years old, when her whole life, her whole container cracked and crumbled and 38 years later we put it back together because we got rid of that dark energy which she knew how to do amazingly and she was hospitalized at least once a year for you know having bugs crawling all over her body while she couldn't account for time and suddenly she's not having bugs crawling all over her body and she can account for time because we take care of an energy that took her over when she's eight years old Uh, do i care if it's real or not does she she wasn't like as miserable. She was still miserable, but she wasn't as miserable. So I don't care. But, don't but what about ancestors and genetics and talking genealogy? I mean, how would that fit in with the concept of past life if it's not like, you know, we come from our ancestors, if it's something else? Like I, this is where I try to wrap my head. Or it's a philosophical question, but I, I just can't conceive of all of it together. Well, just think about it this way. Here's how yeah. I would think about it. Yeah. Think about this concept. It's a mystical, well, it's a non, it's a biological concept that's also a holographic, right? Mm-hmm. We have three trillion cells, right? Mm-hmm. Three trillion, a lot of human cells. Now, on the surface, you'll never find two that are theoretically alike. Yeah, right? and that's amazing. Right? But mm-hmm. underneath it, they all have to be alike. That's how you could take one cell. And you could theoretically, if you have enough information, you can take one cell and clone a whole sheep in its current form, which means all the information that has ever happened, is happening, and potentially can happen is all held in the template of that cell, including everything that ever happened in the past before it was born, because that cell was not around when that sheep was born, mm-hmm. likely. Mm-hmm. But the template's there. So it's remembering something before it was born. It's remembering something. Now, what I'd say is, of course, we are our ancestors. I don't think it's material. I think it's energetic. I'll tell you why. I mean, I've had all kinds of stories where people healed something five generations ago. And I'll tell you the most interesting story about that. We had one story where there was a, a, a young man in our office, and he worked on something on his mother's side about repressed rage. I remember this. And I don't remember the story. I remember what happened after. And it really transformed something. He walks out and his mother, who's in the waiting room, said, did you work on something on my side? Because I feel different. She didn't know what was going on, but she felt different. You know why? Because we changed all of history. Because when you change your relationship with history, you change history, even if the facts are the same. So, and why I say I don't think that it's biological Let's suppose we're working on something in your great grandmother that happened to her when she's 50, but she had your grandmother when she was 30, but you're still holding the thing that happened to her when she was 50. Well, it can't exactly be biological, if that makes sense, because the trauma happened after your ancestor was born, right? So I'd say we hold energetically 
everything that ever happened. It's just some things are closer in and th some things are further out. And what I would say is there are two ways you could talk, if you talk about soul, there are two ways it can come. One is through an energy, literally, that's called karma, or it's called karmic past life, it's called reincarnation. But one is through the energy, not the material of blood, but the energetic of blood as the carrier of soul. And in that way, the blood was already there in the grandmother, even though something was going to happen in the future. I'll tell you something even weirder. You know where some of our problems originate? Hmm. In what we call the future because there is no such thing as time. They just feel, how can, now let me ask you something. How is it that your current wife could have a precognitive dream? How is it? Yeah, I know, it's amazing. <laughs> well, how is it? What's your explanation? How can you have a precognitive dream? Well, personally, I think there is uh, something we can tap into that what mediums would do, which is beyond time. So where you get to basically zoom out and see like the whole lifeline. But then that kind of scares me because then that means it's destiny because it would have happened anyway when you can see it in that sense. No. But yeah, that's that's it's my issue. Probabilities. Okay. Destiny. Kind of like genes, I guess. The probability what? that genes, genetic material that has like could go this way or that way in yes. many cases. Yeah. Right. And then the question is, how much do you follow life? Now, the other thing is there are streams happening on all kinds of levels. There are streams that are personal and there are streams that are profoundly collective. And you, it's very hard to do something on the personal level about something that's profoundly collective because it's like all of life is heading in that direction. So to fight that, it would be like you'd have to be as big as life, right? But for the personal stuff, of course, there's streams, but the streams go into the future. The streams go into the past in this lifetime. The streams go into future lifetimes. The streams go into past lifetimes. The streams go into parallel lifetimes. The streams go into something where you knew some green woman from Alpha Centauri who, and you were her, and she came down to earth and said, are you kidding me? I want out of here, and I feel totally alienated, and they told me I was supposed to help, and this place is bananas. Why not? If you can think of it, so I say, why can't it be that you have a trauma because you were an extraterrestrial, but now you're in human form or somebody walked in on you? Like, who cares? Or why can't it be a demonic force? It's just like your father screaming at you. It's just energy. It's just the most powerful narrative that is. And we know soul now mainly through narrative. I think at some point or other, we'll know it in other ways. But right now, what are our stories? They're ways of revealing soul, really, right? encompassed in it's like oh my gosh that's that's the lesson i was trying to learn and it comes through in these narratives now again i'd say of course you can carry a story from your great great grandfather on your mother's side and that may be the all of why you're suffering in this lifetime because it never got resolved and it's been playing out through the family forever and i can give you all kinds of we have three of those stories in the book go read them i mean like we, we try to give you at least one example of everything in that book because like, you know, it's a smorgasbord, but like open to everything, open to all possibilities of the causes of your suffering and all possibilities of the resolution. Why limit yourself? It's all there. One, one of the things that I never thought about until talking to you right now is the idea of healing and how healing is not just about myself now. Healing could also go back to the past, the present, and into the future. And I don't think I've ever thought of it until this moment about that idea. So it becomes like so much more important 
for me personally to heal and be able to transmit as you're doing with your book, with your work and expanding those circles. I want I want to put what you just said into a big beautiful ball and like say remember that it's I think what happens is you take such a broader view when you begin to look at it this way you're not an isolated being mm -hmm. you know you you're not just healing Irish mm -hmm. you are an enormous community and Irish just happens to be the one that happens to be shining on the surface right now so Irish has a choice that the other ones don't have Irish's choice is, is he going to realize they're all there? Is he going to not pay any attention to them? That's Irish's choice. But as soon as you realize, you say, oh, my God, I'm doing something that's transforming my whole bloodline. I'm doing something that's transforming a whole energy line. I'm doing something that's transforming what happened on, where do you live, Irish? Vancouver. Vancouver, Canada. Yeah, I'm healing the water in Vancouver because it was polluted, but I am that polluted water and I could become the polluted water and find out what happened to it. And then I could be in a different relationship with polluted water because I am polluted water and suddenly the polluted water starts to change. It's kind of weird, but it's true. So you're everything and that's who you are. And it's just like, it, then it's like concentric circles. I mean, some things are, you know, so that's why, you know, think universal, but be local. I mean, it's very hard, you know, but theoretically you could, you can, if you were, if you had a big enough energy and they called you Jesus, you could say, well, the, all of humanity right now needs to have their hearts open. So guess what? Life is calling for a sacrifice. But if you get sacrificed, it affects, well, we don't know what it's going to do, but like, you know, give it a shot and see what happens. Cause. You know. and, and, and speaking of miracles, I mean, it's a miracle that we're interacting here. If we look back into the past, it's a miracle that the great, 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 great grandparents met maybe by accident, and that it was, it happened at that time and everything evolved and developed and technology developed to this point that I got an email, that I sent an email, you responded to it, you scheduled the meeting and here we are. So it's just like, it's just coincidences after coincidence that build up and it's just being like, it's a miracle that we exist and that yeah. we exist in this moment. And that is something that I had thought about. If you change one of the items, at, might be insignificant or even if i didn't go to mexico and decided not to or go to a different town that would have changed the whole perspective of things but the way it worked out this is how we are and it's this is perfect in itself this is perfection we, we don't have to look beyond or elsewhere it's just perfect the way it came together in this moment and i think we that is the miracle in itself and if you know that on one level, it's perfect just the way it is, then that's a miracle. But then you have to know that everything is perfect the way it is, and that's very hard because some things don't turn out like your wife. You know, you have to know on, on one level that even if something horrific happens, it's perfect the way it is, and that's way harder, you know? That is hard, but it's also having gratitude. And, uh, and, and, and the way we know now, and, and psychology has been proving how beneficial gratitude is of, for your well-being, for your health. And, and it's just such a wonderful thing to, to engage in. And we have so much to be grateful for, even if it doesn't seem like it in many circumstances. Well, I think that's true. But like when you can be grateful for cancer, right? Or you could be grateful for what looks like tragedy. Mm -hmm. And on a human level that we're not there, 
I mean, because on a human level, we're in a lot of pain. It's very hard to accept so, that, yes. You know, it's much easier to be grateful for. I followed my path and, you know, I have to met this amazing woman and we have a kid. But um, even so, even so, there are things you can be grateful for, even though you have, you're suffering from cancer, because there are many things there too. So it's really like, what do we focus on? And you will find something to be grateful for. I know I'm grateful for, for our conversation here, which well, has been... Yeah. mind-boggling to say the least here and I, I just want to remind everyone your book is the one hour miracle a five-step process to guide your self-healing dr andrew han you're a licensed clinical psychologist and um you are practicing life-centered therapy that's correct yes and they can find us at lifecenteredtherapy.com please buy the book or you can listen to the book as an audio all of, we only, right now, for the last two years, we've only been doing online training. We train everybody to do what's in that book. You can find all of our certified therapists and you can find everything about us. And if you want to talk to me, if you go to lifecenteredtherapy.com and you go A Han, because my name is Andy Han, and you write to me, I write back. I'm the only person who gets those messages if you send it to me. If you send it to our institute, I'm not the only person. But if you send it to me, I will respond to you. I eventually respond to everything. And I only have one more thing to say. You know what that is? I don't. <laughs> you said we were not going to go longer than Robert Thurman. You I know. I know. <laughs> it's amazing. And it's, it's, it's also like we have to, because we talked about how... Um, it won't be the longest uh, podcast. Most likely it won't be. And it is officially the longest podcast I've ever done. So thank you for that. It's Robert, because you're such an amazing guest to have. And I still feel that, you know, we could go on another hour, but at some point we do have to come to, to an end. But uh, if you would like to repeat any point at any time, I would love to have you on, on Arash's World again. Arash, it would be my pleasure. I mean, let's set it up. You tell me when, I'll say yes. Wonderful. Thank you I so much, Dr. Han. Like, well, thank you. I mean, like, you made this possible. I'm getting, you know, like, tingling all over. So that says to me, yeah, you invite me back. I'm, I'm there. I'll talk to you whenever you like. Just make me an offer I can't refuse. I will. Absolutely. Thank Thanks you so, so much. much. Okay. Take care.